This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We've been walking through the greatest sermon ever told, the greatest sermon ever given, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. And it's, it's, it's known as the Beatitudes, the blessings, if you will. Uh, these are the things that Jesus says makes up what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And this one that we're going to talk about today, I believe, is one of, if not the hardest hardest to embody. It's one that I know Jesus, when saying this, knows this is the one that we would likely want to do the least. So I'm going to start at the beginning of, this, of, of these Beatitudes and walk through. It's important we've been reading through all of them as we go along because, if you remember, they build on top of each other. And so listen as we go through these seven verses. Listen, look and, and read, hopefully read and see and, and think through how they're built one on the other. Starting with Matthew chapter five, verse one, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mercy. This is not a topic. This is not an attribute that we typically get excited to show. We get excited to receive mercy, but we rarely are excited to give or show mercy. Now, we're going to define this in a minute, but when you think through, in in many ways, we prefer mercy for ourselves and justice for everybody else or revenge for everybody else. Someone's recompense for what they've done, we prefer that for them. We often want grace and mercy for us. And Jesus knows that. And so in, in all the ways that these Beatitudes have been building one on the other, Hopefully we can see, right, in order for me to intellectually ascertain my own spiritual brokenness, vitally important, right? So I start with the the, the idea that I can intellectually see my sin, my brokenness. Then I get to the place where I can emotionally respond to my knowledge of my own brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn. Hopefully I'm in a place where I'm mourning these areas that don't look like Jesus, I can mourn these areas where I can see they're not in line with where God's heart is. Hopefully, when, I'm, when I've been able to see my sin and mourn my sin, that puts me in a place of humility. That puts me in a place where now I'm in a, my heart is tender and I realize that there's nothing beyond my capability. I can see that I'm capable of doing any number of things if I'm not in line with where God's heart is. And so this humility starts to ensue. And hopefully then, if I've, if I've intellectually acknowledged my sin and emotionally grieved my sin to the point where I'm in a place of humility, now I recognize how much I actually need. And so I'm hungering and thirsting after this type of righteousness. You see how they all link up. They all connect inextricably. We, we need all of these because if we miss one, we miss the whole thing. And finally, or at this point in time, We've gotten to the place where we're hungering and we're thirsting, wanting to be filled. And now, with all those things being true, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, hopefully, if you've been here with us for any period of time, you know, we, we really do want to get into what were what was any of the biblical authors? What was the intent when these words were written? What did these words, what do these words actually mean? Mercy is a word that we have a lot of different ideas about and a lot of different things that you might feel uh, about it. So let me just start with some of the definitions here. The Greek word uh, for mercy uh, is this word from which we get the word 
alms. If you watch some of the old British shows, they'd be like, alms for the poor. You know, it's this idea that you're giving something to someone who needs it. People need things. Whenever we're giving something out to people and they can't get it for themselves, uh, we're showing mercy. This Greek word for mercy, it's to define a gracious action. Someone giving something to someone that they don't have and they cannot attain on their own. That's this picture of mercy. Mercy is often something shown from someone who has some degree of power, privilege, or authority. So you you might have the ability to change the trajectory of, of what someone is going through. And mercy then would be to make their trajectory better. You might have the power to make it worse as well. But mercy says, I'm going to change the trajectory by making it better. And so if we were to make it really simple, it's giving something to someone who didn't earn it and didn't deserve it. That's mercy. You're giving something to someone who didn't earn it and did not deserve it. The reason why we might struggle with this is because oftentimes we think of mercy as something that is primarily emotional. So someone has offended you or committed a crime. And if they've offended someone, they've committed a crime, they're deserving of punishment. And so there's this picture of the person who's done something wrong, done something offensive, and they're on their knees begging for mercy. Please, please give me mercy. I promise I'll never do it again. I promise I'll never put you in this position. I promise I won't hurt you like this again. I I won't do it again. Pretty, pretty, pretty promise. I beg you, please don't do what it is that you may be inclined to do. Now, imagine they're saying this to you. There's a crowd of people or maybe virtual people on Facebook or social media. And all these people are looking going, don't do it. Give them what they deserve. We have it on wax. We have it on record. What they said to you. We have it on video, what they did to you. We all know what happened. We're telling you right now, don't give in. Don't be weak. Don't show that kind of, don't don't give them mercy. They don't deserve mercy. Here is what they deserve. Throw the book at them. And then that's when this emotional response comes in. Oh, but I have pity. and Oh, I shouldn't do that. No, I want to do better. There's this, we think that mercy is, is ultimately that emotion that's there. But this is something bigger than that. This is something deeper than just feeling pity for someone. It's deeper than just pity. If we relegate it to just pity, then there's a lot of people that won't receive mercy because you shouldn't wait to be moved to a place of pity to show mercy. It's it's really scary if we wait to show mercy to the point where we feel so sorry for someone. What we're going to see here is mercy is very different from just feeling sorrow for someone. It's pity and there's a place for that. But that's not what this is. Mercy is actually a a decision to act from a different place. So to use good spiritual terms, it's to act in the spirit when you're inclined to act in the flesh. The flesh, our, our nature is going to be Justice, revenge, uh, recompense, uh, make sure that I exact my pound of flesh for the pound that you took from me. That's not, don't, you're not, sometimes I feel like we have to act as if that doesn't occur. It, we all have this. It's okay to admit that we have it. The question is, do we act from that vantage point when these situations happen? Because if we're following Jesus, mercy is a very intentional decision to act from a different place. Mercy requires two things, two things, probably others, but I think it can be boiled down to two things. Sympathy, very different. I'm going to talk about that soon. Sympathy and forgiveness. Sympathy and forgiveness. So let's talk about sympathy. It's so good to have one baby that will talk back. It's so good. Love that. It would be so great if his first words were amen. I'm just going to see if we can't make that happen. So, so two things that mercy requires, sympathy and forgiveness. I think sympathy is probably the most integral part of uh, what it means to be merciful. And here's why. Because sympathy really does require something from you. It requires something of you. 
more so than even pity would. The word sympathy is a, uh, if you go etymologically, it's broke down between two Greek words, sim and pathos. Sim means together, with. And pathos means uh, emotions or feelings. To a degree, experientially, you're feeling what someone else is feeling. You're feeling together. So if I have sympathy, then I am coming alongside with you and then feeling what you're feeling. See, empathy, you can actually feel bad. You don't necessarily have to feel the feelings in order to feel something for them or to want better and to want to care about what they're going through. You can empathize, and sometimes we almost hide within empathy because I don't want to have to feel what you're feeling. I could just feel for you, but I don't want to feel with you. That's a lot of weight. Sympathy here, this idea that I'm going to come alongside, I'm going to, uh, in order for me to sympathize with you, I've got to do more work than it would take to empathize. I actually have to figure out how to put on your skin to, to the degree that I can. I have to figure out how to put on your eyes to see some of what you see. How do I feel some of the things that you feel? How do I hear things the way because of whatever your story is and your experiences, how you hear certain things? Some of your life, one of the things that you see is in, in, order, to, in order to experience things with other people and experience what they're dealing with, you have to acknowledge that you're not just looking at where, at where you both are in this situation. So let's think about it again. The example we talked about, somebody hurts, somebody offends, something happens. Whatever it is. You could easily just go, well, I'm just going to look at where we are right now. But sympathy is more than just looking at how we, here's our situation. You did this. I did this. I feel this. You feel that. You look at your experience. But you don't just look at your experience. You look at their experience and how both of your experiences brought you here. This is going to get hard because this means... That in order to sympathize with a person, you have to deliberately look at their story. You've got to deliberately look at their past. You've got to deliberately look into not just what they did, but how they got here. So if you're offended and you are in some position of power or authority in, in any form or fashion, you do have the ability, as we said, to make things worse for them. You have the ability to make sure that they are punished. You can make sure that they're sent to some place to, to, to have something taken from them, to withhold something from them in order for them to feel some discomfort. But again, sympathy is not just a look at what they did, right? It's understanding the things that affected their trajectory up to this point. Listen, everybody has a journey. You have had a journey. Other folks have had a journey. And as you move through your life, there are things that you experience that change your trajectory. However you got where you got, a number of things have occurred and happened, both good and or bad, that have gotten you to this place. It defines a part of your journey, your background, where you come from, what you've been through. A lot of your joys, a lot of your heartbreaks, a lot of your tragedies, a lot of your praise reports, uh, different ways that we have been harmed or possibly even abused or ways that we've been built up and helped. All of that is a part of your story. But here's what here's what sympathy says. Sympathy says on some level, my path has been different than theirs. My path has been different than theirs. And so this doesn't necessarily, we'll talk in a minute, that doesn't mean you have to condone or go along with whatever's done, but you have to do that heart work first and go, in order for me to act out of my own humility, let me start there before, I, you could be legitimately frustrated and angry, legitimately so, by what somebody has done. Okay. But in, in figuring out how to respond on a heart level, this is the diagnostic we got to go through. Go back again. Being, what did we say? Going back to like this beatitudinal approach. Start back and go, okay, identifying my own stuff, mourning my own stuff, 
getting to a place where I'm humble to the point where I'm yearning for, for righteousness and I'm hungering and thirsting for that, getting to a place now where I can start to figure out what does it mean then to be merciful given all of that. My story has been different than this person's story. So someone can, if I'm in a situation where I can withhold something or dish something out, instead of looking at the situation, we stop and we take all of their journey. Keep in mind that others have a different journey. And so yours may not have been like theirs. And mercy requires that we function like this. According to Jesus, mercy requires this. Jesus ultimately says this because his followers should be regularly exercising this. So let's just make it real. What does this mean? This means that we intentionally listen to people. We actually listen to people. Many times we are not listening to comprehend. We're listening to respond. Normally, that's where we go. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you talk just enough so that I can have my return salvo at the ready. I know what it is that I want to respond with. I feel like I know what you're going to say already. So let me just let you talk long enough to make you feel like you got your point across so, so that I can now cross-examine or show you why your logic is wrong. I'm telling on myself. But this is where our listening goes. We just typically are not in that place. But if you're going to sympathize, you've got to stop and actually listen to comprehend. So how do we do this with people? Depending on where we are, what situation it is. We've got to uh, read. Sometimes it means listening to people. Sometimes it means reading, reading books and stories about some parts of different people's backgrounds, what they may have gone through, maybe something medically that they're dealing with. I've got to try to get into, figure out what it means, what this looks like for them. Sometimes it means spending time with people with whom we disagree. That's a real hard one because we get to curate for ourselves the environments that are most comfortable for ourselves. That's just how it goes. And so if I want to be the most comfortable, spending time with somebody I disagree with isn't it. But if I have to show mercy to someone that I disagree with, I'm probably going to have to figure out how to spend time well enough to know how to sympathize with them. That's hard. That's not something we would ever just voluntarily want to do. And yet Jesus shows us this is the kind of mercy, the kind of mercy we have. You cannot be merciful without sympathy. And sympathy can be really hard. Sympathy plays a huge role in forgiveness. We all have people in our lives on whom we purposely do not practice sympathy. We all have people in our lives that we just ain't got no sympathy for. Put it very straight. There's people that we're just like, I, you know, they have done something wrong. Like this is not, this isn't, this isn't me saying like, oh, you thought that they did something wrong, but really they, they really didn't. You were too hard on your summation or your estimation of what they did. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the people that you know for sure did something that was out of pocket. How are we supposed to show mercy there? And Jesus said that this is the kind of mercy when we show, we receive mercy. But we have people in our lives that we don't practice sympathy on. We don't spend time thinking about their experience. As a matter of fact, if there's somebody that might have done us wrong, we get offended when it's time to listen to their experiences. I do. Somebody does other, I don't, I don't want to have to think about that. I've been wrong. And listen, those are all legitimate. We're not saying that you can't still tell the truth and go, because if we have another conversation, sadly, there are certain groups where disproportionately so, we're expected to listen to the, the pain of one group and not the other. That's a different convo. We can have that. That's more dealing with justice and making sure that it's equitable on both sides. But that notwithstanding, if we're following Jesus, what it truly means to show this kind of mercy is very uncomfortable. Because honestly, if you have done something wrong and I'm supposed to show you mercy, I'm going to get very upset if I have to listen to some whatever your sad sob story is that got you here. I'm not going to want to listen to that. And it makes sense humanly. I'm not going to want to listen to that. Sadly, what happens in our own hearts is I don't even want to hear something that's going to humanize you a little bit. 
I would love for you to humanize me if I'm on the other end, but I for sure don't want to have to listen to something that will force me to humanize you so that I have to look at you as a very nuanced, complex, dynamic individual with so many things that has influenced where you are right now and how you even got to where you got to hurt me and to do me wrong. We don't typically do sympathy well. We don't want to hear the things in their story. You know what we want to hear? We want to hear, they're evil and I'm good. We've all had the same journey. They just made the bad decisions. They're evil and I'm good. That's really, it's more comfortable to be in that place because the dirty, the heavy lifting of trying to figure out how to be merciful, and trust me, that's a nuanced conversation because I think that can be horribly abused and used in some really bad ways. But there's work we have to do to figure out how to do this. So if somebody hands, it's, it, it almost works like, like this. Imagine somebody hands something to you or throws something to you, some kind of offense, Something that's been harmful, something that's hurt you, something they've committed toward you. And you're looking around at the other people holding this and going, do you see this? You see what they just threw at me? What should I, what should I do with this? Should I throw it back? Should I fill it up to make it heavier and throw it back to them? What, I got to do something with this. I can't just, just hold this. We all struggle with this because this is what I would call this cycle of vengeance that we all come into the world with. We all, on some level, wrestle with this cycle of vengeance, a cycle that humans have been going through from the beginning. We see this in the Old Testament. Think about the Old Testament, this law that's given to these tribal peoples. If you really look at the Old Testament, the laws in the Old Testament weren't necessarily based on what you might or, or the, the laws that were given to those types of peoples weren't necessarily based on justice as we know it now. It wasn't based on justice as we know it now. The laws back then were based on what you might call proportionate vengeance. Proportionate Vengeance. You think about uh, Exodus and Leviticus and even in Deuteronomy, you see a number of laws that ultimately say, you hit me, I'm hitting you back. Proportion of vengeance. You hit me and it causes this damage, I hit you, cause the same damage. Exodus 21, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, uh, wound, stripe for stripe. Think about that. I mean, on, on, on the surface of it, okay, well, it makes sense. It's you did this, you have this coming back to you. There are many places in the Middle East that do function this way still. You do this, you get this back. This person died, you've got to die. Again, proportionate vengeance. And we look at this, and you might look at some of those laws, and, and, and I would say, truthfully, I think it would make sense to go, this, some of this seems barbaric. Some of this seems brutal. I mean, this isn't right. Somebody steals, so we get to go steal back? That, that wouldn't make sense. Cut off somebody's hand? We don't go cut off their hand. This isn't how civilized societies function. And to that, I would say, you're right. You're right. Civilized, civilized societies don't. But here's why. Because we started there. We started there. So what that means is, one of the things you notice when you read, it can be hard to understand this when reading the Old Testament and seeing God and seeing God in the New Testament. You see God, uh, many things continue to progress as time goes on. God is speaking into these tribal people and all they know and understand is vengeance. But what if I told you that, that uh, even though the law in that day or the law that God gave in that day was proportionate vengeance, and although it does seem brutal and barbaric for that time, what if I told you that those Old Testament laws were actually a progression past some of the contemporary laws of that time? Because remember, what does God bring here? God brings in the Old Testament proportionate vengeance. But if you look at some of the other ancient texts and ancient laws during that time, their laws were not about proportionate vengeance. Their laws were about disproportionate vengeance. One of the most famous 
old uh, code of laws that had been codified during that time, the Code of Hammurabi. Basically, when you read this old ancient text, it ultimately says, if you kill one of us, we wipe out your whole tribe. You injure one of us, you die. It wasn't proportional. It was, you do this thing to me, and I'm going to respond with something above and beyond what you did just to teach a lesson. Y'all, that's our real heart. That is, that's our real heart. You do something to me, I want to do something that's going to make you never think about doing that to me again. In order for me to make you feel like that, I've got to go beyond what you did. I've got to do things that make you never even think about doing that again. That's a military strategy. People love to bring up like, you know, uh, uh, I've, I've had had this conversation where people would say uh, some of the some of the some of the um, I guess you could say some of the uh, racial. Some of the some of the racial terrorism that you've seen in this country's history, especially in the 30s, 40s, 50s and lynching that would happen. People oftentimes would look at the numbers and people started being able to codify just where it happened and what state and how many. And people would go, well, there were only this many. And, you know, I've heard somebody say this, like, well, you know what? It just seems like people act like these lynchings were just so common, but there were only X amount of thousand in 30 or 40 years or X amount of hundred in 30 or 40 years. That's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, wait, you don't understand. You don't understand. Um, it only takes a few to create the fear that people would go, oh, my goodness, they do disproportionate justice down here. All I need is a few. How many atomic bombs have been dropped by this country? Two. No one would dare do some of the things that happened back when Pearl Harbor was attacked because all it took was two actions of disproportionate vengeance. That's all it took. We have always functioned with disproportionate vengeance. That's really who we are. You do something to me, you, th you get one lick on me, I'm going to get five. Hopefully I'll incapacitate you by doing that so that you can't do something to me again. It's never been equal or proportionate. That, so you notice that the, the way that the laws were during that time in those tribal people's groups, it was all disproportionate. Then God comes on the scene and says, OK, I have to pro progress you guys up. So, so here's the law. The law now is going to be proportionate justice or proportionate vengeance, I should say. So that's what we have. Proportionate vengeance. Humans are so, we, we are so inclined to disproportionate vengeance that even uh, proportionate vengeance feels like a stretch. It feels like a stretch. And so these people come to know God, and as they come to know Yahweh, they come to know Jehovah, all of a sudden, uh, the progression, the trajectory of God moves, uh, it moves people from disproportionate vengeance to proportionate vengeance. But Jesus eventually turns proportionate vengeance into disproportionate love and mercy. We think that the most just is proportionate vengeance, and God is going, Jesus goes, and, and, and yet I tell you another way. I'm going to move you from even what seems to be the most fair. And I'm going to move you to something that would patently be unfair. I'm moving you to radical justice I'm, or radical love, radical mercy. There's a progression here. And so when, what we see in Jesus, we see this picture. And we're going to well, look at it again. But we see that there's this sense in which Jesus is not even functioning like what do these people do? All right, give them this. What do these people do? Give them this. How did they talk to me about this one? All right, well, this is the punishment I'm going to heap upon their head. So in order for that to happen, in order for you to get to a place where you actually give something that a person doesn't deserve, because again, proportionate vengeance is giving somebody something they deserve. You did this to me, you now deserve this. In order to get to a place where we're able to give this unmerited favor, this mercy, you would have to get to a place where you sympathize and know where they are, know how they got here. Get to a place where this is what Jesus does with us, which leads us to the second aspect of mercy, forgiveness. And talking about forgiveness is, is more helpful, I think, to talk about what forgiveness is not, because I think that so often we throw the word forgiveness around 
And in many ways, what we tell people is forgiveness is basically just being quiet about it and just dealing with the pain and settling with the pain and holding on to the pain and calling it something else. We think that as long as you're not bringing up the thing, as long as uh, you don't talk about it, then it must not be there anymore. So to talk about it or to address a pain that's there is to not be forgiving. And what happens is we've in the church, we've done this. We've actually forced people to just live and lie with a smile. Is this thing healed? No, it's not. And then we shame people for not, quote unquote, being healed because there's a pain or a major thing that has not yet been reconciled because we have conflated forgiveness with reconciliation. Forgiveness only takes one. Reconciliation takes two. But we have made those things synonymous. So, so when, you, when you think about what forgiveness is not, it's not condoning. It's not pretending. It's not acting like everything is okay. It's not being passive aggressive. It's, it's not uh, this admission of weakness. It's not allowing people to walk all over you. It's not passive. And it's not just letting things go per se. Again, case by case, there are situations, right? It is, it, is, it is to a king's honor to overlook an offense. We know that there are times when certain offenses can be that. But it's not a blanket thing. Many times we do that. We're like, well, hey, these things, these, these things happened. And, and uh, if things have not occurred to be able to help heal the fissure that was there, you got basically we put the pressure on one person to heal the whole relationship. That's not what forgiveness is. And I think... We'll talk about this when we get a few uh, verses down. I think the church has been a horrible purveyor of this kind of a message. So many families have been in situations where either uh, certain families have stayed together under the guise of forgiveness when it was nothing but toxicity for decades or vice versa. And so we've got to figure out how do we how do we talk about what real forgiveness is? We've got to look at what it isn't. Forgiveness is a decisive decision done by you. There's a retired pastor and author who put it this way. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free and then finding out that the prisoner was you. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free and then finding out that the prisoner was you. See, ultimately, forgiveness is, we've said it before, forgiveness is simply, I'm giving up, I'm resigning my right for revenge against you. Y'all, sometimes there is like a fuel that we can feed off of when we're just kind of feeding into all the reasons why we deserve revenge against another person. Legitimate frustration, legitimate pain, legitimate reasons for wanting vengeance, okay? We're not talking about, uh, yeah, you've made a mountain out of a molehill there and that's not as big of a deal. No, we're talking about there's a legitimate thing and a, a legitimate uh, uh, um, way in which somebody has crossed the line. A legitimate way in which somebody has genuinely pained you, hurt you, offended you, transgressed. And you know that. And so you can easily feel yourself. Sometimes we can fuel ourselves on all the reasons why we deserve revenge. And what you don't realize is living in that place, you're just erecting another cell for yourself. You got spokes everywhere. I got this reason. I got this reason. I got this reason. And sometimes it could be somebody that you may not even see for a long time, but you still. Here's the other thing. You know that you become in bondage when you almost have everything played out. But really telling myself, have everything played out on. If I ever talk to that person again. This is what I'm going to say. Now, there are some conversations for sure that need to be had. But when it's when I get a chance to say this to them. I want to make sure that they feel what I felt. I want to make sure that they hurt the way that I hurt, if not more. I can't wait to uh, get this out and get this out and get this out. You're putting yourself in a prison. You don't realize that you become in bondage. And that's the reason why. One of the things when we talk about repentance, forgiveness and repentance, forgiveness frees the offended. Repentance frees the offender. So you, if, if a person, this is why I said, a person doesn't necessarily even need to repent in order for you to forgive them. If you understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation well, then that makes sense. If you think it's the same thing, it will never make sense. 
So I don't have to wait for my opportunity for revenge against you. I don't have to do that anymore. I don't. Whatever I have to do dealing with things, God, vengeance is yours. Whatever it is, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Would not dare act as if that's something that's just so easy, quick. I wouldn't haphazardly skip over that because that's a lot of work. But the goal is, Lord, how do I get to a place where I can give up just my right for revenge here? Give up my right for revenge. Forgiveness is the ability to look at someone and say, you don't owe me anything. I'm setting you free of your debt. When you do that, you realize that you were carrying a debt, too. You were waiting and sometimes forcing them to work for your forgiveness. What do I have to do to just make you feel like you ought to be working for my forgiveness? That becomes a a way of putting ourselves in bondage. But this act of forgiving that we're talking about says everything that needs to be done in order for me not to carry this, carry this desire for revenge is gone. It's done. Nothing else I need for you to do in order for me to give up my right for revenge against you. Nothing else. Again, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean, therefore, things get to go back the way they were. That does not mean that. And I believe that that has been a message from the church for a very long time. Forgiveness is not an automatic right for reentry. It isn't. That's the reason why a call to repentance and reconciliation is there. It may not always be there. The goal is always reconciliation, but it may not always be there. Plenty of examples in Scripture where you would hope and think that certain things can be reconciled, and it just isn't. So don't mistake the two, because then we end up putting ourselves in other forms of prison, relational or otherwise. Doesn't mean that we go back to the way things were. That's reconciliation that takes two people, but forgiveness takes one. Reconciliation can't always happen, but it's always the whole. Forgiveness requires this work to be done by us. You're free to be free from the people who have hurt you. You are free to be free from the people who have hurt you. Give you a good example of how much this kind of mercy is difficult. This idea of mercy is really, is really hard. And as a matter of fact, God knows that our genuine heart posture is one that has a particular aversion to mercy because he gave us a whole book in the Bible that if you read it wrongly, you will miss this point. The, most of us, when we, and we've preached through the book of Jonah, so feel free to go back through that series when you can. If you grew up in church hearing about Jonah, you can easily believe, and often it has been taught this way, that the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, is basically about disobedience. And when you disobey God, God will do something to force you to get back on track. God might bring some some really hard situations in your life because you were hard-headed and disobedient. And so in Jonah's case, he was disobedient and he ended up getting swallowed up by a great fish. And God took him uh, three days in the belly of this fish until he finally came to his senses to some degree. And then God allowed him to go back to finish what he started. So the moral of the story is obey God or get swallowed up. That is not the moral of that story at all. That entire story is about forgiveness and mercy. That entire story is about Jonah being angry because God was merciful. Listen, when you think about the story of Jonah, this is, uh, if you think about what happened during the, uh, the times of the ancient Israelites, you've got, this, uh, you've got this story that takes place where Jonah is told to go and deliver a message of love and repentance uh, and, 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 frankly, God's heart on several matters tells him to go to this city of Nineveh, which is in Assyria. Now, if you're an ancient Israelite, you know you hate the Assyrians because historically we know that what the Assyrians had done is they had come and ransacked all over everywhere where uh, uh, ancient Israelites lived, they had been ransacked, they had been taken away, they had been exiled, they had been sold off to slavery for centuries, treated like second and third class citizens and slaves. They had been completely terrorized. So you didn't look at Assyrians as anybody that you wanted to be around. And frankly, if there was a message that would be preached, you hope it would be a message of judgment. There are times where God would say, here's what's getting ready to happen to you. Jonah, if God told Jonah to go and give them a Sodom and Gomorrah message, He would have been about it. Absolutely. I can tell them they're going to die. 
Sign me up. God says, Joan, I want you to go there and I want you to give them this message of repentance. How do we know this? How do we know that Jonah, the truth of the story of Jonah is when you hate God because he's merciful, you're Jonah. When you you don't realize it, but you can be spiteful of God because he's merciful. And since he's merciful, he invites you and requires you to be merciful as well. Well, I didn't sign up for that part. Let me be the one that's hurt and you bring vengeance to them. Why do I have to be the one that has to uh, care about showing mercy at the same time? And yet this entire book of Jonah is about forgiveness and mercy. Listen, Jonah is a descendant of these ancient Israelites. So imagine being descendants of these ancient Israelites. Knowing what the Assyrians have done to you over the last several centuries, knowing all the things, sometimes maybe by camel going by the old places where you used to live. I'm reminded of uh, some of the stories you hear about some of the folks who lived in Palestine before being forcibly removed from their homes under the era of so many other kind of positions and uh, some of the very toxic forms of Zionism that were uh, around and still around today. You think about these folks who were living in Palestine for long periods of time, forced out of their homes. I heard stories about one particular family who was able they were able to go back to their homes that they last lived in in 1948. And under one of the floorboards was a key that one of the children, when they were children at the time, had to some kind of a lockbox that they had had, and the key was still there, and they were able to just go in and find it and just wept. They were like, this was the home that we were supposed to be raised in. And we were forcibly removed, and some of our relatives were killed. And yet because the government now that's in place has a certain type of power, they get to control the narrative. They get to control the story. We don't have any real justice right now. And there's a struggle. How do I even show mercy to to, specifically to folks who have the power to change it and don't? This is where the people of Jonah had to be able to identify so can you imagine Jonah going, hey, y'all, I just got this word from God and I need to process this with y'all so y'all can like help me figure out what I should do. Now, he's telling me to go basically to the enemy who's done horrible things. We have voluminous books written probably in our own cultures and traditions about all the ways they've done horrible things to us. But God just told me we got to go and I got to go preach like a message of, of, of mercy and repentance and inviting them to, to be right. And he's going to forgive them and show them love and invite them into his kingdom. What do y'all think? Now, all of us here can act as if we're the holiest thing in the world. But I'm going to tell you that for the most part, many of us would be like, nah, go back and make sure that was God. Maybe that was indigestion. I don't know if that's God. Because my God wants me to be healthy and holy. My God wants me to be blessed. My God doesn't want me to be, I'm supposed to be the head and not the tail. And you, That's where we would tend to go. Because again, there's certain parts of God I like to highlight. And that's the only part of God I want to see. But this other part where I'm supposed to engage mercy, engage mercy. See, that's hard. That's where Jonah was. So now Jonah's like, yo, I don't know if I can do this. And so Jonah was like, I'm going to take the next boat the opposite direction. I'm going to Tarshish. And this isn't just conjecture, because Jonah actually says, if you remember what he said, this is what he says in chapter four of Jonah. He says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Listen, because I knew you were gracious. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, Lord, take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. In other words, I would rather die than to show mercy to these people. God, just kill me now. You want me to live and show mercy? I'd rather die than obey you here, too. Y'all, this is where we can so easily, if we get so, we get to a place where we are held hostage by this desire for revenge, that mercy becomes an untenable option. It'll never be something you'll tolerate. You'll always have a reason to not show mercy. You would rather die than show mercy to these people. You know what also that's saying? That's basically saying, 
I don't want to serve a God that loves these kinds of people. I don't. Because I just don't see. And listen, these can be some very reprehensible people. I've got a lot of categories in my mind right now of people that I could say, I, I don't really know that I want to have them over dinner. But, y'all, as hard as this is, and I'm not saying this as one who has arrived at all, we are called to this radical form of mercy. So engaging that is something that we have to wrestle with throughout our lives. But we can't be in a place where we're like, I would rather die than show mercy there. Because what it's saying is I would rather die than obey my father in heaven. But this is how we function. I'd rather die than call this person my brother or my sister. That's why Jonah is, I believe, has been preserved in Scripture to remind us that God's love transcends anything we understand to be fair. And that's hard because it forces us to acknowledge it's not just the things that happen to us that shape our image of other people. It's the things that happen to 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 not just ourselves, but even things in our family, things in our past, things in our culture that colors everything. It colors how we see people and it colors whether or not we will even show mercy to certain people. And so think about this, because I think we, we all carry these things in us. We all carry the, the, the baggage and the trauma if we legitimately even come from positions or, or families and uh, groups that have uh, collective trauma for years and years and centuries sometimes. There's basically a lot of baggage that gives you all of the excuses for why you ought not show mercy to people. Legitimate reasons for having frustration and feeling these things. That's why I think Jonah ends the way that it ends. Look at how the book, it's the only book of the Bible to end with a question. The only one, because it's a question we should always be pondering all the time. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Over 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. That's God basically saying these are people that are a product of their environment. Again, not an excuse, but an explanation. These are people that are a product of their environment, and this is what they know, and this is what they do. They are clueless. Should I not love them? And I believe the Israelites understood the corollary to this. Should you not love them too? This is God's way of saying, is anything just set in stone? However frustrated you may be, however hurt you may be, I think about things in my own life that have been, in many ways, they feel irreparable. They feel like there's just no way for me to figure out how. I don't know if things will ever be reconciled, but even just to be able to have a merciful heart, I used to think that just forbearance was mercy. So I felt like because I didn't make a big stink about stuff and because I didn't say anything because I just wanted to keep the peace. But really, that's it. It's just like I, I don't want to address the elephant in the room. And as long as I don't address the elephant um, frequently enough, I'm doing the forgiving thing. But really, I'm just forbearing. I'm just overlooking over and over and over again. But there's this big heaviness that's always there. And so in, in many ways, God is basically saying, whatever it is that you've been through, whatever it is that you've gone through, however horrible this is, is it set in stone? Because the only thing that is immutable, unchangeable is God. So if anything else, is there anything that is beyond God's ability to change? Hard message. Hard message. Again, is there, and when I say change, I mean, is there anything for God to change this desire for revenge, for God to change this inability to just act mercifully toward? This is what God is telling uh, Jonah. Should I not love this great city? Should I not pity this great city? Should I? Look at what he did. They don't even know they're left from the right. In other words, I've entered into their story. I'm, I know where they're coming from. I'm not making excuses for them. If you look at the message that was given, it's still a repent and believe or else. But he's like, I, I'm God. I enter into where you are. Does God not love them? If the answer is yes, God loves them, then the next question is, 
then do you want to be like God? Can you learn to love them too, despite what they've done? Our answer is often no. We can't. But according to Jesus, we need to be in order to receive mercy. I was reminded of, uh, as I was a researcher for this, that I always struggle with some of these stories because I, don't, I, would never, I would never presume to tell other people then here's what you ought to do uh, when you go through really horrific things. I think, we, again, the church oversteps their bounds so, so often by going, well, if this happens, then you need to do this. This happened to you here? You need to do this. Wouldn't do that. Need to do heart stuff and ask the right questions to get people to ponder, Am I, is my heart where God is? But I, I remember, and I don't know what I would have done in this situation I'm going to share because honestly, I just... I guess I'm just not merciful enough, but uh, back in October, I believe it was October 2nd, um, in, in 2006, um, it was a place in Pennsylvania, Amish country, where a, a man went into a schoolhouse and shot 11 people and five little girls died. And it was all intentional. Walked in, <clears throat> killed them, and then killed himself. And the story, again, it feels like every other week we're hearing about a mass shooting, and that's a whole other thing. <clears throat> but the story that came out was not only the pain of this family, <clears throat> and not just the pain of the community, but the way the community responded. <clears throat> the, the community responded by immediately, or quickly enough, going to the family of this man and showing forgiveness. Showing forgiveness. Some of his relatives, they were bringing food. Caring for, while painful, this wasn't one of those things where they were like, let's put on a show to show everyone what it means, because sometimes we're good for that too. Let me do this thing in broadcast for people to know. Look at how benevolent I am, despite what, no. They, in the Amish culture, this is something that's indexed very highly. It's very, it's expected that you work in a heart with a heart of that kind of mercy. It doesn't mean that you say anything that's good about what happened. It doesn't mean you don't still, you're not still painful. But I remember in 2006, this story came up. I believe ABC News and other film crews went down to ask them, like, how? At one point, they asked a grandmother of one of the victims, how did you guys get together and plan to do this? What were the conversations like when you guys all as a group decided Let's show mercy and forgive. And the grandmother responded, and she's like, why would we ever have to have a conversation with each other about let's forgive? Like this, it sounded preposterous to her. Listen, I'm not saying that this is always the thing. I'm, please hear me. when I'm not saying the best way to show that you're forgiving is to do this. What I'm saying is we all should be wrestling with that. We all should be figuring out, Lord, I can mourn and I can decide to remove myself. But, Lord, let me make sure that my heart is not in a place of vengeance when I do so. And for some people to ensure that they're not in that place of vengeance, this is where they need to go. But they they went further. They went into the man's story when they found out that this man nine years prior had lost his little girl. Super angry, frustrated, whatever it was, and then went and did these things that he did. Horrendous, horrific, tragic, deserving of all the punishment, whatever. But they, they, didn't use, they didn't look into that story so that they could excuse what happened. But they knew it was vital. In order to make sure they didn't live in a place of vengeance, they had to sympathize on some weird level. Weird to us. How do I step into where this person is? Doesn't mean that we don't do what we got to do to defend. Doesn't mean we don't do what we do to make sure that doesn't happen. But for them, this was really to free themselves. That was it. Because 10 years later, I looked up another article and they went back and visited that, the, the families that were there. And they still affirmed that they felt like that was, many of them said this was the only thing that we knew we could do to make sure that we didn't get a root of bitterness in our own hearts. But many of them said to this day, it is still heartbreaking, and I still don't know how I'm going to get past this. You see, there's a both-and here. 
It, it doesn't mean because I am finding a way to forgive, I am now removing any place for grieving and removing any place for truth telling about what occurred. This kind of this kind of mercy is so foreign. It, it just it really feels like I don't know. I don't know how just humanly. I don't know how to get to a place emotionally where I know that you've done something horrific to me or my loved ones, intentionally so, and yet I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to somehow work to forgive you. And yet, we're stuck with Jesus, headed to the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you see how upside down this is? Do you see that this is not like, this isn't like us just finding a way to uh, be our best self and then allow Jesus to join us. This is engaging who we truly are. And Jesus says, this is how I'm coming into your heart and turning it upside down. And there's a blessing in it for you when it happens this way. Completely upside down. And yet Jesus says, blessed are people who are merciful, who wrestle with mercy in this way, because then they will receive mercy. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is Jesus. This is God in the flesh showing cosmic sympathy, sympathos, feeling together. God came to feel and experience our pain together. Why? Because we were estranged. There was a rift. We needed forgiveness. That's why people, you look at throughout thousands of years, people have always, you look at any tribe, any culture, you see some history, in most cases, you see some history of sacrifices being committed in order to assuage whatever anger of the gods that existed. People have always known or sensed that there was some sort of rift there was some sort of uh, uh, difference, something that separated us from whatever deity people uh, believed existed. And Genesis begins to put an end to that. Puts an end to this idea, okay, well, I got to, because we know that it got to a point where many cultures were sacrificing humans, thinking that that would assuage the issues that the gods might have. So you see God putting into that. People always wonder, like, why would God uh, tell Abraham to take his son up to sacrifice his son? It's always crazy to me because, again, I don't know about your relationship with God, but like for me, it'd be a hard one. And so you see that happening. You're always wondering, like, did God really want that to happen? Because we know later we know God is not about that. But in many ways, he's putting to death some of these ways in which people thought this is how you connect to God. This is how I uh, satisfy his wrath. So God is like, uh, OK, we'll take your son. Gets there. No, we're not going to do the son. There's a ram in the bush. So, again, progressing away from that, moving to animals, but it doesn't even in there. So you get the sacrifice that's there. Uh, but later, later, we see the sacrifice that really God requires is a pure and upright heart. And then Jesus eventually shows us no more sacrifices are needed at all. I will be the final one. You can know that you're OK. You can know that you're forgiven and you don't have to do all of these things anymore. Listen, people so often can feel like. The reason why it's hard, too, is we we can some, sometimes you can assume that God will show the same kind of mercy you're inclined to show. So, you know, better than anybody else, what you may have done. You know how ways in which you may have harmed or hurt other people or ways that you have not acted when you should have ways that you have said things or thought things. You know, those things better than anybody else would. And so it's easy to feel like there's, there's just no way that I can be forgiven knowing these things that I've committed against others. There's no way. Yet you realize in many ways we function like that in relationships, friendships, marriages, families. Man, if they knew this part of me, they would leave. If they knew. I used to make this joke when I was young. Man, I'm so glad that it's not a spiritual gift to read minds. 
That's not crazy. That would be just knowing you're sitting in a room and it's like, by the way, I got the spiritual gift of mind reading. I'm going to a different church. I can't be here. Because it's this point where, again, when we're aware of our own brokenness, you're like, man, if people knew this part of me or people knew this thing, and maybe it doesn't have to be something overly egregious. If people just knew that my heart was oriented this way, they may not feel as comfortable to be with me or I might I got I, I have abandonment issues and I might get pushed away. And we engage in those same abandonment issues with God. If he knew. If, if he, as if he doesn't know, but if he knew. So we treat God. We treat God as if he would treat us the way we treat each other. So we say there's no way he can forgive me. There's no way, given all the things that I've done. And Jesus argues, no, you you actually can be forgiven. Why? How? Because I showed you mercy. I had sympathy on you. That was the whole point of the mission. I've walked in your shoes. I understand the decisions you made. I know what it means to experience all the things that made you who you are. I have felt all of it so that you know he has fully forgiven you. Because he understands everything, everything. So you can't say there's no way that God can forgive me because he doesn't really know. Like we say with each other. I mean, you're in a relationship for long years and years and years and years and years. And you over time, there's something about you that you've just known you've got to keep on lock because if they ever find out they would leave. Now it's 20 years, 30 years. Then certain things get found out. And you're like, I've been all the stress I've been holding because I just I, I put so much work into keeping this part hidden. Because if you knew, you would, you would leave. These unhealthy cycles of relationships that we fall in. And we think we can do that with God. And God is like, beloved, you don't have to do that with me. Because guess what? I know exactly what you thought. I know exactly what you felt. I know exactly the wrong decisions you've made. I know the temptations because the word says that I've been tempted in every way that's common to man. So there's nothing you feel or think that I haven't seen. Actually, that is the best way that for someone to ever sympathize, to know, to be able to feel and experience with you. You can't say he can't forgive me because he doesn't really know. Because ultimately, Jesus came incarnationally, put on flesh to incarnate humanity. He shows mercy because he sympathizes with us. This is why we tell the gospel story. We tell people forgiveness is possible and it's real and it's divine. And and listen, it's not just given to you for you to be forgiven. It's given to you to show you how it's done. So we become incarnational. We start walking in the way that Jesus walked. We start showing mercy in the way that he showed mercy. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we spend time with people. We listen. We proverbially walk a mile in their shoes. Because when you do that and you begin to sympathize, you start to say, man, if, if I was in your shoes, I may have done the same thing. Don't know, maybe, maybe not. Sometimes no, but, but humility says, if I were in your shoes, what do we say? I wouldn't put it past me. So I've got to start there. That's why the scripture says there, but for the grace of God. Hawaii, each and every one of us. Look back, see some horrible situations and think, no, I I would never. Well, it's possible. And we wouldn't put it past us. So when we study God's word with understanding, we're confronted with this fact. that, That every act of God from the very first beginning of his plan in eternity past up to right now is touched by and saturated by his mercy. That's why Psalm 103 says the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the pattern that we emulate. He's given each of us an abundant demonstration of his mercy. We don't ever have to fear what he does and what he has planned for us and what he leads us into. Because as Psalm 136 says, give thanks for the give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. It never runs out. It never runs out. New mercies every what? Every morning. 
I love that. I love the wordplay there because it's like you can go in the evening and be mourning and he moves your morning to morning. This is what mercy does. And if God does that over and over and over again, we are called to do the same. He will not. He cannot change from what he is. But we can and we must change to be like him. So the prayer, the call is for us to learn, to commit ourselves, strive for being merciful because he's merciful. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Let's pray. Father, this is, this is far from easy. And God, honestly, it's not even something that is enjoyable to engage in. It's not something that we wake up excited to practice. And yet, for so many reasons, you show us throughout your word that you have called us into this rich relationship that moves us from a place that desires vengeance to a place that desires mercy. So God, I, I pray the things that we have prayed since we have begun, that you would reorder our desires, that you would change the things in us that make us want vengeance, that you would change the things in us that makes it hard to sympathize, that you would, we're not asking to, uh, for a way to uh, 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 find ways to lessen the impact of a thing that's happened. But God, we're just praying that we get your heart for mercy so that we are not seeking vengeance. And Father, ultimately, I thank you that you have made a way for us to receive your mercy because your mercy is great. Your loving kindness is great. You've provided all of these things for us in ways that we could have never gotten for ourselves. There is no greater sympathizer than you. There is no one more merciful than you. You told us, Jesus, you said that you are sending us even as you are sent. You have been sent mercifully. Let us practice mercy. God, it's uncomfortable. It's hard even as I look back through my own life and I think through my own feelings and emotions and attitudes about things. God, I pray that um, somehow through your wisdom, you show us, show me what it means to courageously tell the truth about a thing and not be in a place where our hearts are driven by, motivated by, and find our foundations in vengeance. God, we want your love, your mercy, your grace, your kindness. And God, I pray that others who come into our community would sense that we are a people of, that values mercy above vengeance. God, whatever that looks like this week for us, whatever it looks like for the rest of the year for us, whatever it looks like for the rest of our lives, God, I pray that you would keep bringing that back to our remembrance. Because ultimately, it's about your kingdom and not ours. So move us from a cycle of vengeance to a cycle of mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.